After the Listening to Ayahuasca book was published, I began to meet some of the women who'd been working underground. I had been, you know, in the late 60s in California in some of the same places with some of the same people. I understood their roots. I knew where they came from. So I was the first person they openly talked to. They had a vow of silence for half a century. They never told their stories to anybody. This was a real opportunity to hear from the people who are most experienced working with these medicines in the Western culture. I heard their stories and they were very, very different. So these women worked on themselves for years and they apprenticed with people, with Stan Graf, with Ralph Metzner um, for years and years. And they gradually began to work with people in ceremonies and they use all the medicines and they've experienced everything at all dosages. So they're, you know, they're not, they have no fear, these women. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Psychedelic Conversations. Today we have Rachel Harris, PhD. Welcome, it's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you, Susan. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure and thank you for creating this time to be with us. And for our listeners, I'd like to say a few lines from your bio so they can connect and and we have some context around your work. Rachel Harris, you are a the author of The Swimming in the Sacred, Wisdom from the Psychedelic Underground and Listening to Ayahuasca, a psychologist who has been in private practice for 40 years and spent 10 years in, a, in an academic research department where you published more than 40 scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals and received the National Institutes of Health New Investigators Award. That is so wonderful, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. As always, we like to begin with um, learning a bit more about you and connecting with your story. What brings you to this work? Oh, you're good. We're going to start there. So, okay. So when I was 21, this is, you know, 100 years ago, and graduated from college, I went right to Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. So that was a retreat center in uh, that developed in the early 60s. And um, I was in their residential program, which was an intensive training, a uh, five, six-month program for 11 people. And um, this was my idea of graduate school. So... <laughs> Um, and it was in 1968. So back then, there were a lot of medicines available or psychedelics, as we called them then. So my experience was really in nature. I was not going to rock concerts. I was not um, doing recreational drugs. It was really a spiritual approach in nature. And um, And then you know, I grew up, I mean, I was only 21. So I was there for a couple of years, I worked on the staff. 
And I, you know, had to grow up a bit and go to graduate school. And then during my householder years of family and a child, you know, I was busy. But when my daughter graduated, when she finished graduate school, I decided it was the middle of winter. It was a miserable winter. And I wanted to go to a retreat um, that was by the, that was warm and a beach, a beach resort. So I found this place. A friend had gone to a retreat there and it sounded great. It was between the rainforest and, and the Pacific Ocean. It was, this was 2005. And um, the day before I left, someone called me and said, do you want to participate in the ceremonies while you're at the retreat? And I brilliantly said, what ceremonies? I had no clue. So she said, well, they're ayahuasca ceremonies. I happen to have a book about ayahuasca on my shelf that I had not read. And um, I, but with the background I had, I said, sure, <laughs> that's great for me. And the truth was, it was a, this was the beginning of my linking back into my youth after raising a child and, and professional work. This was sort of a resurgence of my own personal life in in this realm. And so, you know, I I we did, I don't know, I think three ceremonies that week. And it was um, you know, I got home and I I called all my friends and said, I found the fountain of youth. <laughs> that was a good sell. And um and all my old friends were, you know, had that experience from their youth. And so uh then I organized a group to go the next year. And so I worked, they were, they were, in, it was in Costa Rica and they were importing um, shamans from Ecuador. <clears throat> so, you know, I had the kind of mind blowing experience that people often report. And then, you know, the, the subsequent search for how do I continue this? And of course that led me back to California and finding people to work with. And, and so I've been doing that ever since. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I'm very familiar with Esalen and all the great people that, you know, were in Esalen and had their retreats and um, very much aware of Stan Groff and all the yeah. other great people that back in the 60s and 70s, I believe, or the 80s. Um, yes. What a time to be experiencing that and being in Esalen. Uh, it's it's amazing. It sounds amazing. So that so, that is really the foundation, not graduate yeah. school. That's Esalen is the foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. So, um, is your main medicine ayahuasca, or did you? you no, know, that's so interesting. People ask me that, and and the answer is absolutely yes. There's no question. Mm -hmm. And I have a relationship with a shaman who was grew up in an indigenous village and trained by an indigenous godfather. So that that is the medicine. And, you know, a very interesting thing happened for me. I had, you know, I, for the Swimming in the Sacred book, I was interviewing women who had been working underground for at least 20 years, and many of them 30 and 40 years, and using the standard protocol of earphones and eye shades. And, and as I'm starting this research study, I realize I've never done a, a journey in that way. I never, I was always out, you know, in Big Sur, in, in nature. And so I did an MDMA trip, you know, under blanket with music and eye shades. And, and I thought, well, this, this will be fun. You know, the ayahuasca, I've never called an ayahuasca ceremony fun. 
So that when I thought, well, this will be fun. It'll be easy and and heartwarming and opening. And I'll be damned. I went to the ayahuasca place and it was all about death and dying. <laughs> this is on MDMA. So um, it was a valuable experience. It was um, very reassuring in many ways. And but it was a total, it, it's very interesting to take one medicine and go to an unexpected place. So I feel like, yes, ayahuasca is my medicine, and I must have a well-worn path that goes to the ayahuasca space. Yeah, this is brilliant that you're sharing this, because I always had my own opinion or my understanding that it doesn't matter which medicine it's it's the same we go to the same place it's like a, they are different doors to the same place would you agree i i don't know that i would agree to that you know i also in you know for the sake of research as i'm doing the swimming in the sacred book i did a ketamine session cuz i'd never done that that's a totally different place mm-hmm. that was not that was very very different but then you know, that's not a traditional psychedelic it's a dissociative so that's quite different yeah. What was your experience like when you say different? Um, I had a I had a wonderful experience. One of the important things from that experience, I did it in a in a clinic. It was a legal um uh, treatment, a journey. And so there was a medical doctor and a, a social worker therapist. And um they gave me uh I forget what they call it, but something that you hold in your mouth for 10 minutes, right? And then you spit it out. And that lasted for about an hour. And that was a, a journey of its own. And at that point, the doctor said to me, you have a choice. Do you want to go deeper and longer? So, I mean, now you know enough about me, given my history. I said, yes. <laughs> and so she gave me an, an, uh, an I am, a shot. And that went on for another three, four hours or so. So when I'm coming out of it and we're talking and doing some debriefing, I said to her, this is the first time someone has not overdosed me with one of these psychotropic meds because I'm very, I'm, uh, I, I don't need much. And we can talk about that. People need different dosage levels. And I know in myself, I don't need much, but people often don't believe me and overdose me. I said, how did you know? She said, I gave you a shot with the lowest dose I've ever given anybody. And I was like, well, how did you know? Because nobody else knows. She said, I watched your reaction to um, to the lozenge. And so I knew from that reaction, you didn't need a normal dose. That if I underdose you, that's plenty for you. And it was, I was gone. I couldn't talk. You know, I was very grateful they held my hand. Oh, and that's another thing they had asked me. This is very tricky. They had asked me ahead of time, do you want to be touched in any way? What kind? And I said, no, no, I'm fine. I don't need anything. Well, they held my hand anyway. So this is, I'm about to give a talk on ethics and for an Australia group. And this is not what you're supposed to do because it's not what I asked for. But they did it, and I was so grateful. So I don't know how we talk about this in terms of ethics and permission, but they held my hand the whole time, and I felt like, you know, it was a string, like they were holding the string to a balloon. (laughs) So I was very grateful. Yeah. 
it was a really interesting experience and kind of opened up my um, sense of what reality is. I mean, it really changed my ontological sense of reality is what it's called, my my what's in my world for me, you know, the way I think of the world. So it was very valuable for me. And I was very clear, I really didn't need to do it again. Wow. So it was like, okay, I, you know, this was a really interesting realm. I had wonderful music. I had worked with um, a therapist about the music and, and it was pretty ecstatic. Yeah. And it was done. Yeah. I would like to come back to your book, but now that we are talking, let's move into the harm reduction and, and ethics of, of the medicine, as you said. So where do we stand here now that this happened? Oh, we we stand in, <laughs> we're having trouble. I don't know how it is in England, but, you know, we've already had reports of people um, crossing boundaries. and. Uh, and if they're not, here's the problem, if they're not licensed with a, in, in a professional organization and the person, the, the victim, doesn't want to report a, what is basically a rape, but in an illegal drug situation, an underground situation, then there's no consequence. There's no accountability. And this is really a problem because boundaries are lowered with the medicines. And some, some I've been hearing, uh, some practitioners think that they need to take maybe a small dose of the medicine in order to journey with the person, to kind of go with them, to know where they're going. And my position, I want to be clear about this. I have said, if some, if somebody says, now this is separate from the indigenous use where the shaman drinks, that's totally different. This is a Western context where somebody is sitting with a psychedelic drug, basically, if they feel they need to take some of the medicine, then they, they're not experienced enough. Because people with a lot of experience know how to go with you um, intuitively. They don't need to, to have the medicine in them. And I, I can give you another example of that. I was, uh, this is years ago, I was serving as a therapist, you know, I was in private practice all those years. So I was in a ceremony with um, indigenously trained Westerners uh, doing an ayahuasca ceremony with one client. And I was the therapist for that client. And um, I didn't really, I didn't want to drink ayahuasca. I'm working as a therapist. And the, the, the shaman said, um, we'll put a drop of ayahuasca on your forehead. And so I had this brown mark. It was like a, you know, Ash Wednesday. It was a brown mark on my forehead. And that will tune you in. And I said, okay. And I had been close enough with ayahuasca. It was fine. I could go with the the person and the whole ceremony. <clears throat> so if somebody thinks they need to have the medicine ingest any of the medicine they're they're not experienced enough is that true for all of the psychedelic medicines well you know as i said it's not true for ayahuasca because there's a tradition and it's not true you know with peyote and situations like that but if someone's you know working 
and and it's not true with mushrooms in an indigenous setting, but in a Western setting, if the person sitting, the guide, says they're going to take a small amount, it's a warning. I understand. Mm. Yes, thank you for highlighting this. Really important. Um, what other issues we're dealing with that you're aware of that our listeners should be aware of maybe um, well you know I'm out and around a lot a lot of people I'm talking to a lot of people and the thing that's beginning to come up that's kind of shocking to me because it was it's breaking an old old rule is that I'm beginning to hear that people are doing a journey when they're home alone yes that's a big one I think that's quite prevalent in the UK actually mm-hmm well, I have trouble understanding it because it is an old axiom that you should always have someone with you. So and it's hard for me to understand. So what are the risks if they do this alone? What is it that they need to know and hear about? What are the dangers if they go alone? What if they need help of some sort? What if they get really scared? Yeah. I mean, some journey, I mean, even the best of situations, I've talked to people who felt they were traumatized uh, on a journey or a ceremony, that the ceremony was not healing. It was, it was a traumatic experience. Um, so if they're home alone, that trauma is intensified. Yeah. What if they do uh, what we call the micro doses, smaller Oh, oh that's tea. totally different. I did that this morning before I had tea. That's totally different. Mm -hmm. Would you um, would you say that sometimes that's the sub, micro that's, that's yeah. subperceptual? You shouldn't feel anything. Okay. So would you say that even on a microdose, sometimes things can come up that could be quite disorienting? Not or? with a microdose. Not yeah. any more than a bad dream. I mean, if something's coming up on a microdose, you're taking too much. And so here's my confession. Um, you know, I, I wasn't sure of the dosage myself. I had a chocolate bar with mushrooms in it. And, uh, um, and, the, and the dose on the package was one square. So I'm very careful. I took a half. Well, that was, that was a journey. <laughs> and I'm home alone. <laughs> Not what I intended to do. So, you know, I, I thought, well, it, I'll, I'll sit outside. I mean, I'm in this beautiful setting. I'm on an island off the coast of Maine. I live in, in a beautiful place. And, you know, at one point I was sitting outside and, and I got cold and I thought, this is why I need a guide. I would ask someone to get me a blanket. It would be really nice to be taken care of. So, but I had to get up and go get my own blanket. And that was not as therapeutic <laughs> as it would have been for someone to take care of me. That would have been nice. Yeah. So, you know, but that was a I made a mistake. I didn't make that mistake again. But people are not making a mistake. They are intentionally saying, I'm going to journey at home alone. And, and there are medical issues that can come up and people can panic. Yeah. You know, for the Swimming in the Sacred book, I interviewed underground elders who have been working decades. And one of them told me a story where the, the client got in trouble. She's sitting right with him. She's reassuring him. She's got 40 years of experience. She was trained by Stan Groff. It doesn't get any better than this. And she decided, we need help. 
we have to go to the ER. Now that's basically reporting herself that she made an ethical decision to go to the ER and say to a doctor, I'm doing something illegal and we need help to calm this guy down. That's a big decision. She happened to encounter a sympathetic ER doc, so he did not call the police. But if you're home alone, you don't, you're, nobody's going to make the phone call. Nobody's going to take you to the ER. And that can get pretty traumatizing. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very important. So we can speak and speak all the time, but I understand what where you're coming from because um, people do insist, I guess, until they have their own journey and realize that it wasn't a good idea. But like you said, it could end up in a real bad situation if they, they don't need to experiment to understand or realize. Um, that's what I'm hearing. Just be, be more careful, you know, take that precaution, have someone there. Yes. And, and I'm also saying, listen, you don't have to do this alone. You don't have to be, you know, in, in, in the States, I, my phrase is you don't have to be a cowboy. You don't have to be macho about it. You can be taken care of. And that's often very therapeutic. I'm so happy you mentioned that. Do you think is this is because of a lot of people are, they have inhibitions being vulnerable around people, even if it's a facilitator, trained um, medicine person, they still don't like being vulnerable under the influence of the medicine around another person. I That's a theory. I don't know. You know, we would have to interview a bunch of these people doing it, you know, ask them their reasons. It's a, it's a good research question. Yeah. But because, we, you know, yeah. we, there's so many things we don't know about what's going on. But I think I think the bigger question is for the modern Western world, how are we going to hold these medicines? The indigenous people have tra traditions that go back thousands of years. They know how to hold the medicines. And, and, and in a sacred healing way, we're in a position where we're, we're just learning culturally. And so far, we're holding them basically in a medical prescription way, right? And also in an illegal way. We're just beginning to have some legal access to medicines. And the que one question is, who's going to control that? So we're just, we're only just learning. Yeah. And at the moment, Australia is the only country that legalized psilocybin for example on prescription yeah, recently yeah now, but that's still controlled by the medical profession but you know that's going to get out everywhere <laughs> right yeah um, but everybody's growing mushrooms in their closet anyway so i mean th this is it's th that's one of the easier medicines to get a hold of so we we have a a, a cultural learning and mat I think a maturation that we have to, how do we hold these medicines in a way that's sacred and healing and um, safe? Yeah, absolutely. So since you have seen the different cycles of the psychedelic medicines over the years, 
what are you seeing currently? Because there was a psychedelic conference happening in Denver last month. Yeah, yeah. I've, ju- I've just recovered. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was there. I went. Mm-hmm. Um, 12 or 14,000 people. Yeah. And there were kind of different, there were different aspects of the conference. There were the presentations I presented. There were, you know, the people who, the, the, the con- the conference attendants, people who went and had a choice of lots of different things. There are the entrepreneurs who are building businesses. They're there networking. Some of them are presenting, uh, you know, high tech solutions to working with medicines, um, virtual reality approaches instead of a therapist. Um, and then there are the funders, the people with. Who, who are capable of making million-dollar contributions. And they're there mingling also. And uh, they're not presenting, of course, and you don't always know who they are, except they are much better dressed. Um, and that's very interesting because the academic scientists need funding and the entrepreneurs need funding. And so there's this, this you know, movement that's happening that's not part of the um, public conference. So it was very interesting. And it was hard to find everybody I wanted to talk to in, in that bigger crowd. It was. So, yeah, yeah, I was there and I, there I, too. See, I, I, you. I didn't even see. I missed you. I realized just now. Yes, it was a lot of it was people. wild. Yeah. I mean, lunch was um, terrifying. You know, everybody lined up for lunch. I I gave that up the first day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we kind of like in the wild, wild west at the moment. It feels like that with the medicine. Yes, I think the, so. Yeah. With the medical model, therapeutic model. The, and then we had the indigenous presenters, indigenous elders joining the conference. And um, some of the people that I did manage to speak and interview, they weren't really happy about how they were held and hosted i don't know if you have anything to say to that as well well i'm i'm very concerned about this not just at the conference but at some of the retreat centers in um central and south america and and here's here's what i'm concerned about for people who are wanting to go to travel um ask how many people will be in the group because um, they some of the retreat centers, you know, the more people, the more money the retreat center makes. And they are not concerned with the shaman's um, dis- clinical decision, really. I need to spend 20 minutes with this person, especially a Shabipo shaman who's singing to that specific individual. So they have it regimented. You get 10 minutes with each person. Well, that's not how a shaman usually works. They, they, sing to the person as long as they are intuitively told to sing to the person by the by the medicine by their own connection so already there's sort of a a you know a, a business like approach so that's one of the things i would ask how 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 are the shaman treated how how much freedom do they have in their own way of working or are they time limited Another thing is some of the retreat centers don't allow the shaman to speak with the participants. Now, sometimes there's a language barrier, but there's always someone around who can translate. 
but some of the shaman are prohibited from speaking to participants. I would not go to a retreat center that silenced a shaman. Oh, just the thought of that. So you want to know, is the shaman treated as an employee just for making money? This is the kind of questions you want to ask. And if these are these questions are not answered or if they're found to be offensive, I would not go to that center. I want to know how the shamans are treated before I sign up. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Um, thank you for saying that. Also, with specifically with ayahuasca, I've heard, I don't know if you're aware of the making it or turning it into capsules Yes, in the yeah. medical model. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, as the researcher, it has to be done because the dose has to be controlled and the potency has to be controlled. And this is the way research has been done in Brazil and Spain. And this is very valuable research about the benefits and the potential of ayahuasca as a medicine. However, <laughs> I would never do it that way. I mean, from my heart, I would I would never do it that way. I, I want to work with the plants as directly as possible. And there was a research study in America that was started and they wanted to do indigenous ceremonies. And so the, they were working with shaman. And at one point they said, and we will use these capsules. And the shaman looked at the capsules and they said, this spirit is not in that capsule. We will not work with the capsules. And that was the end of that research study. So there's the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So just want to come back to your book again, Swimming in the Sacred. With um, Could you tell us a bit more? And I'm sure uh, our listeners are really intrigued by this book. And what moved you to write this book? And what was the research behind it? If you can share a bit more to us. About the, the book really, um, uh, after the Listening to Ayahuasca book was published, I began to meet some of the women who'd been working underground. And I had been, you know, in the late 60s in California in some of the same places with some of the same people. I understood their roots. I knew where they came from. They they apprenticed in to a Western person or, or, or went to Peru, you know, different, very different stories. Well, I went to graduate school. So it was a very different path. And, um, but they trusted me because they knew my roots that I had been there and they had seen the ayahuasca book. So this is, I was the first person they openly talked to. They had a vow of silence for half a century. They never told their stories to anybody. So this was a real opportunity to hear from the people who are most experienced working with these medicines in the Western culture, not in comparison to the indigenous shaman who grow up with the medicine, but in the Western modern culture, these women have more experience than anybody. So um, I heard their stories and they were very, very different. One woman you know, did go to Peru and study for years with an indigenous shaman. One woman studied with, you know, the book I recommend is called The Secret Chief. It's an interview of Leo Zeff. 
it's a small book. It's online through maps. If you go, if you, if you, we, I, I can send it to you and you can put it on your website yeah. um, because you can, you can get the whole book online free. The secret chief revealed. So Leo Zeff was a therapist in the San Francisco Bay area. And around 1960, when he encountered the medicines, he came out of retirement to work with journeys. And one of the women I interviewed, who's now 90 years old, apprenticed with him. So these women worked on themselves for years, and they apprenticed with people, with Stan Groff, with Ralph Metzner, um, for years and years. And they gradually began to work with people in ceremonies. And they use all the medicines, and they've experienced everything at all dosages. So they're, you know, they're not, they have no fear, these women. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that will be, uh, yeah, it would be amazing to add in the show notes for our listeners to check it out as well. Yes. And what are your thoughts on, um, at the moment, I'm speaking with some some people in the medicine space, and they also talk about their concerns around the way the indigenous people are also kind of losing their integrity in kind of coming in, coming on board with the Western people, trying to bring them to their country or, um, you know, bring them into their ceremony. Um, I mean, especially I have one native lady that I, I have known for a while, and she said, Peru is just turned into a ayahuasca tourism right now. And the indigenous people are also um, kind of losing their way because of the what's going on. And, you know, because they need support and they need the money and there are not everyone is integrous in, in the way they approach the medicine. What are your thoughts? Or do, did you hear anything like that? This is, this is a very difficult question that's been going on and, and, and goes even beyond um, the, the, the ayahuasca situation. I mean, if you remember in the 70s when teachers began to come from Tibet, they, um, they, they, you know, they had been monks. They had come from monasteries and they didn't all behave well. There's plenty of stories of sexual abuse. So, you know, some of the teachers from an indigenous culture are not prepared to enter into the Western culture. And it's, uh, it doesn't, it's a problem. And I can't say that the that we the spiritual <clears throat> culture has handled this very well. So I I can tell you a story that should really um, be a, a a warning, and that is that one one of the women I well she's a dear friend and I interviewed her for the book and I mean this woman is just fearless. She slept on the floor of the Amazon jungle covered with chiggers. I'm like, where's the bathroom? You know, and of course there is no bathroom, but she just really went into the jungle and she was studying with one of the most powerful uh, Shabibo shaman. And when she learned that, and she was with him for years, but when she learned that he was abusing Western women, she confronted him directly. And he said, but it's so easy. Now that should really 
warn people. And of course, he promised this woman that, you know, his student that he would change. And when he didn't, she left him. So she left a very powerful shaman, which is, I think, a scary thing to do. And, uh, you know, trained in another situation. But that that tells you a lot about what can happen um, with power. Yeah. And, And also different cultural values. So the uh, what I've been told is the indigenous women know never to be alone with a shaman. They take a female relative with them. Mm. So I think that's just common sense, good advice. Never be alone. Yeah. So the other thing is, I think from my experience and what I'm hearing or hearing people talk about is, or at least there is this idea or preconception that if this person is a powerful shaman then they're supposed to be they have transcended their only you know need and need for control and that's that's entirely incorrect (laughs) yeah yeah because they kind of put them on a pedal stall thinking okay they you know yeah yeah that's that's kind of the one of the biggest issues they trust easily and they put all that you know in you know know, power over yes i tell people go slow if you're looking for experience go slow talk to a lot of different people yeah yeah Yeah. what why do you think the medicines or at least the medicine spaces lend themselves into this kind of abuse and you know this kind of yeah yeah there's the same projection onto them that you just so well described that this must be an enlightened person who would act ethically at all times. And my goodness, we really know that's not true of just about anybody. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then, and then there's the lowering of the boundaries. You know, I, I had done research years ago looking at psychotherapy and, and, um, I'm trying to find another word, but it's really sexual abuse, but cross where the therapist crosses boundaries. And the American Psychological Association did a study of their members. And these are the therapists who admitted, we don't know who, you know, who was not willing to answer honestly, but it was 10% of the male therapists. And gee whiz, they tended to have sexual relationships with women patients who were 10 years younger. So this is an old, old story. And, um, you know, we need to be very realistic about it in all kinds of situations. You know, there, you know, we, we know a lot of stories of medical doctors abusing patients. So it, where there's power, there can be abuse. But the specific risk with the psychedelics is the lowering of the boundaries, especially with MDMA, where you know, it opens the heart and people do, You usually I, I, I have MDMA and I go to a death situation, but most people, you know, it opens the heart and they want to, you know, be close to, you know, they're, they're more open to intimacy. I'm evidently more open to dying, but that's besides the point. <laughs> but um, yeah, we, we, um, I, I just lost track. I got sort of <laughs> sidetracked with my own MDMA. So 
we're just going to have to learn how to manage these medicines and how to hold people accountable, which we do not have a good system for yet. Yeah. So my my message is really be careful, beware. This is a potentially risky situation in a lot of ways. You know, the other thing I warn people about is if you're signing up for a ceremony and nobody has done a complete medical interview of all your diagnoses and all your medications and really questioned you, then, you know, spend hours with you, then don't go. Yeah, this is wonderful as well. So these are great to highlight uh, for the best practices, to look for the best practices in the psychedelic medicine space. The screening and the connection with the people and the facilitators, uh, should they be talking directly to the facilitator or or should they be okay talking to the team members or should they have a team? The facility, yeah, I... Yeah, yeah, it needs to, there's a, a lot to handle. Even shaman need assistance. Sometimes they're in training. And and maybe there's um, somebody uh, with a medical degree who does the screening. Or certainly the, the, the underground guides who I interviewed, the, if they had a question, they had medical people to call. So they were not practicing alone. They also had people to call for consultation and uh you know if a question came up or you know they were not alone they had colleagues you know therapists have peer supervision where they talk to each other about um their clients and you know i've i've been working with um uh through a friend of mine who goes to peru often i've been working with three a family of shamans in Peru, Shibipo shamans. It's a family. It's two brothers and the wife of one of the brothers. And as I learn more about them and how they work, they have case consultations before a ceremony. So the three of them, the three of them are going to sing to each person. Each, each shaman of the three is going to sing to each person in the ceremony. And they organize themselves. Let's start with him. I mean, this is all in their Shipipo language. So it's, it's all been translated to me. So they decide who they're going to start with. And, and you know, they're sort of targeting a real strong healing approach. And they did this to a friend of mine. A friend of mine was in a ceremony with them. And I heard about this later, that the, that the three shaman had decided, we will start with this man. He's a tough cookie. And they each sang to him first. And I asked him about the ceremony afterward, and he's in his 80s. And he said, I don't remember much, but I had tears running down my face for the whole six hours. (laughs) So they did very good work with him. So they had, so this is like a clinical um, meeting that they had, a case study that they decided. So you know, shamans, you, you you want them to have a team and to have colleagues and to have peer support and peer supervision and to have a place where they can go with questions. Just I like therapists. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> I love that. I actually had my own experience with a very small team of uh, shamans and, you know, medicine uh, carriers. And 
they would take a very small group of people and exactly like you said, they would yes. kind of have an exchange beforehand and yes. have a little conversation about the energy that they're perceiving and, and what, yes. what might come up from who. I love that. Exactly, exactly. And this is how an apprentice is trained. At the elbow of a shaman, the shaman is singing. This one apprentice told me, and I sang a nanosecond behind him, right? <laughs> Learning to sing the Icaros. And they were able to whisper and say, do you see that? Do you see that moving? Let's sing to that. So that's, you know, that kind of training goes over six, seven years of learning. Yeah. And sitting at the elbow. So you're right there. And two, two of the women I interviewed were told, you're ready to sing or you're ready to do your own ceremonies. And each of those women said, no, I'm not ready yet. And they waited a whole other year. And then they began working more independently. That's very different because I, from, from the people who contact me who have been to two or three ceremonies and they come and they talk to me and they say, Grandmother Ayahuasca told me I should be leading ceremonies. I should be working. And I have I've been speechless a lot of the time. And, and one of the underground guides said to me, the way to answer that is, yes, you are being called. But what that means is the plant spirit wants you to study, not work, <laughs> begin your study. <laughs> That's very different. I love that. And this is, I was just going to share that with you of what do you think on this? Because specifically with ayahuasca, I mean, also mushrooms, I've heard from a lot of people, even after having one session or one ceremony. Oh, they always say that the medicine told me I'm, I'm, I'm going to work and be a facilitator. Yes. So what that means, begin your study. Yeah. <laughs> now, so, I, hmm. I, was, I, I just want to acknowledge, we need a whole bunch of psychedelic therapists for, for the studies and to roll out the treatment and even just to be ketamine therapists. And so people are not going to be able to spend seven years exploring all the medicines and working on themselves the way the elders have done. That's not going to happen. But I do know a number of um, very experienced therapists who, who've been in private practice for 10, 20 years, and they are beginning their medicine journeys. They're searching. They're going to Peru. They're going to the mushrooms. They're really working on themselves. Now, they've all had therapy before, but this is like a whole other layer of doing, doing therapeutic medicine work with, with the plants. And so they are really beginning like a different kind of graduate school with the plants. And so it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. But I love what you said. Begin to study, not to serve. I yes, love Thank you. <laughs> I love that. Wonderful. Thank you so much for all the wisdom you're sharing. And before, as we're coming to the end of our conversation, I would like to um, ask, what would you like to share with our listeners in terms of um, if they feel like they're called to the medicine? Um, is there anything did we leave out that is really that we should be highlighting for harm reduction and for their safety that you would like to share? 
Well, we we know with the with the psychedelic medicines that don't take it if you're if you're on an antidepressant an SSRI. I mean, that's sort of the most standard rule. But I think you can do ketamine if you're on Prozac or Paxil. So that's a different option. It's a different chemical system. So that's just concrete one just beginning. Mm -hmm. And don't lie about it (laughs) because we all know everybody lies about their healthcare and medicines and that sort of thing. So don't take the risk. I mean, there's you can really get in a lot of serious trouble because you're, you're double dosing serotonin. Yeah. Um, And, and just what I said before, take your time, be careful, talk to a lot of friends, get as much personal information as you can get. And there's no rush. These medicines have been around a long time. Yeah. Take your time. Have some patience. And in terms of, okay, one last question, if that's okay. Um, integration, the the very popular concept. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at the Swimming in the Sacred book, I have a chapter where the title is, What the Hell is Integration Anyway? Right? Because we don't know. And, you know, we just in terms of therapy, we don't know what therapy is best for what people. This you know, there's a lot of research that needs to be done. And so, and, and um, you know, there's even talk about, well, maybe you don't need any therapy, which, you know, I spent my life doing therapy. So, I, you know, I don't really like that. Um, but the I can tell you the way the, the, the women elders hold the medicines and integration, they don't do integration. They, they, they do debriefing, they'll talk to you. But if you need ongoing sessions to explore what happened, they will refer you to a therapist. Or if it seems like there's a process going on, they might say, well, why don't you wait a month and do another journey? So if there's a journey process going on. But here's my best example. Albert Hoffman, who synthesized LSD, he lived to be 102 he did his final LSD session when he was 97. So the way the medicines are used in real life, not in the studies, is over a lifetime. The medicines are different. Certainly when I did psychedelics in my 20s, that's much different from what I did in my 50s and 60s and 70s. It's a very different experience. It's a different time of life. So the medicines can be used over a whole lifespan and they're initiatory into different stages of life. And um, so integration in the sense of, well, you work for three or five sessions or even 10 sessions, it's really an ongoing process in life. And it's, to me, my understanding is it's a therapeutic process. So the best is to work with a therapist over time who is experienced with the medicines, not serving them, but has their own personal experience. I love that. Maybe we should change it to, rather than integration, a bit of a guidance, someone who's experienced that you can talk to someone and then talk about your experience and exchange and um, as I know that as we speak and share, we also get more insights into it and it becomes more clear. Yeah. Um, 
I love what you said about this is a lifelong exploration. It's not you do five sessions today, uh, this week, and then that's it. You just keep integrating. I understand that. I understand that. I think it's a very powerful way of looking at it. And um, this is where we are still learning, I guess, with the psychedelic space. That's a great. That's a, I think that's maybe one of the most important things I'm saying as a culture. We are still learning. And, and we need to be humble about it and have humility because um, we're not using the medicines. The medicines are helping us. The, the plants yes. are coming to help us. <laughs> yes, learning to abandon the consumerism mindset and yes. yeah, be more open, more exploratory. Okay. Thank you so much for Thank all you. the wisdom. It's been a pleasure to have you. And <laughs> I would love to connect again in the near future if you're open and if you if you do travel to London, you can be our oh. Guests and we'll be oh, thank you so much. of course and we'll have your links in the show notes and your um information if our listeners are feel to connect with you and uh yeah thank you for joining us and so i'll send you that um the link to the um secret uh the secret chief revealed you've read it yes it's a wonderful book yes i would love to add it for our listeners and um thank you for all the teachings all right thank you so much everyone for joining us hope you guys enjoyed this session and if you would like to get in touch with me and rachel please do do so and drop a comment share your experiences ask a question and i will see you on the next one bye for now Thank you so much for joining us. Psychedelic Conversations podcast is designed to educate, inform and expand awareness. For more information, please head over to psychedelicconversations.com. You can also share with your friends or leave a review so that we can reach more people. You can also join us in our private Facebook group to keep the conversation going. This show is for information purposes only and it is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.